Well, uh, it's been my um, privilege to have been at Gateway for a long, long time. And uh, it gives me kind of a, it gives me a unique perspective to have been in the same church for so many years. And uh, I, I was thinking this last week about when I, when I first came here, I, uh, I had never been a senior pastor before. And so you know, I came and I dove in ministry and we just all figured we'd learn together as we went along. And that, that's a lot of what happened. But years ago, we were next door where the kids meet now and it's a smaller little space. And uh, the, the church was growing. And I think I'd been here maybe, uh, I don't know, five, maybe six years. And we kind of gone through this thing where the church was growing and that was super exciting. But most of the time, the way the church grew was uh, people would come and they'd visit and we'd meet them. And, you know, then they'd say, well, and we'd say, why are you here? And they'd say, well, I'm, we're here because we need this or we need this or we want that or something like that. We want some ministry for our kids. We want something for us. And those are always great because the church is here to minister God and his love and mercy to people that God brings in the doors. And so that's always great. We always love that and, and, and want that. But I can remember uh, getting to this point where I would pray each week, God, you know, bring some new people and stuff. But in my, in, in, in my mind, I kept thinking, I don't know how. I don't know how we can keep having more people come in because we were so, there was so much going on and so much ministry. And I felt like the leadership, we were getting spread so thin. And so somebody said, you know what you should do is you should also pray another prayer while you're at it. You should start asking God if he might bring some mature believers to the church, like some leadership people to the church. And I remember thinking, that sounds like a great idea. I don't know if God answers that prayer. I'm not sure I've ever seen that, but I'll do it. And so I began to pray, God, basically, I was like, God, we need help, you know, help. Uh, we need some mature people around here. And so I began to pray, and I don't even think it was a week that went by, and it was a weekend, and we're meeting people, and this, this couple comes in, and they introduce themselves, and uh, they, you know, they said, hey, we just moved here from, uh, from Oregon, and um, he, I think they moved here for his job, and we, so we started talking, and, and they were telling us about, you know, what they had done at their last church, and uh, many of you knew probably Steve and Glory, and so, you know, they'd be like, we were doing this, and we were involved in this, and I just remember having this conversation and getting really excited, like really excited, and I was trying not to show it, because that would be, that would smell like desperation, and I, I didn't want to smell like desperation, but I was just like, you know, getting excited, and, and so I, you know, I said, man, you guys, should, you want to come over for dinner? Uh, with my wife and I, you know, and just we can get to know you a little bit better, um, and uh, I can make the sales pitch. No, I didn't say that, but I was just like, oh man, so they were like, sure, yeah, we'll come over. So they came over to the house, and we had dinner that night, and I, uh, here's what I remember about my discussion uh, with Steve and Gloria, and I, I got to spend over the years a lot of time with, with Steve, but um, uh, what I remember so unusual that I wasn't used to hearing was, I remember saying, what are you looking for in a church? And he said, what are you looking for in members? And I never really had anybody ever ask me that question. I would usually ask people, what are you looking for? And they'd tell me. And it was, I just can't remember somebody going, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. What do you need? What does the church need? What is the church looking for? How can we, how can we serve? And I just remember, my, I, my wife and I are talking about this. I just remember like being at the table and being so excited and trying not to shake, you know, and it's like, oh God, thank you, thank you. And trying not to be, you know, that desperate person on a first date kind of thing. And, and, and so anyways, you know, they ended up joining the church and becoming members. And, 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 and here's what, in a lot of 
of conversations that I had with Steve over the years that I learned. And that was Steve was a guy who knew that God loved him and knew that God was using him and knew that he had a story. He had a story of things that God was doing in his life, but he always knew that he wasn't the center of the story, that there was so much more to the story. And he was just always looking to see how, how can I fit into the story that God's, uh, you know, that he's filling out in this world. And I say that because I remember some very specific conversations where that's exactly what he would say and what we would talk about. He understood he was important, but that the story was more important and it wasn't about him, it was about the story of what God was doing in the world. And this made him the kind of guy who had a huge impact on us as a church. And, and Steve's gone home to be with the Lord years ago and yet his legacy still lives on in this church and lives on in my life because he made a difference. As he understood, as we said last week, that there was a big grand story that God is working out. And our story only makes sense when it's understood in light of the story. Now we're filling this out in the book of Nehemiah. And we started last week and I told you if you have your Old Testament, those 39 books, and you open it, it, Nehemiah is almost in the middle, except that chronologically it's actually at the end of uh, the Old Testament. It, it, it takes place right before we have 400 years of silence and then the birth of Christ. So just to bring you up to today a little bit, if you were here last week or if you, you weren't, uh, roughly 600 years before Christ, um, the nation of, of Israel, as we think of it often, was, was divided by north and south, and the northern part of the kingdom had not been faithful to God for years and carried off into captivity. But the southern kingdom, Judah, kind of hung in there for a while. They had some good kings. They were, they'd follow God off and on, and eventually they just wandered from God. And so God wanted to draw them back to himself, and the way he did it was uh, through a captivity. The Babylonians came in uh, roughly 600 years before uh, Christ was was born and they uh, captured uh, the, the city of uh, Jerusalem and those were there about 10 years later they just completely destroyed the city altogether they tore down the walls they burned down the temple they, they killed the religious leaders and they carried off uh, their best and their brightest and so Judah was in captivity to uh, Babylon and then an interesting thing happens the Babylonians are conquered uh, by the Persians and so here's, you know, here's Judah, and they've been captured by the Babylonians, and now the Babylonians have been swallowed, if you will, by the Persians, and so now they have a new master, if you will. And this new master has a different kind of strategy towards people they conquered. They tended to send people back to where they were from, and they would have them practice their religion and all that stuff, and so they told the Israelites, if you want to go back to Jerusalem, you can go. Most of them didn't want to go because Jerusalem was completely destroyed and nobody really wanted to live there. But some people went back around 538 under the leadership of this guy that God had raised up whose name was Zerubbabel. And I always think of Zerubbabel went to deal with the rubble. And so he, he went back to Jerusalem. He, he led the first wave back and they worked on the temple. And so they, they, they would work and then have some setbacks. And, and finally around 515, the temple's rebuilt and that's all awesome. But the city itself really wasn't put back together. The walls uh, are not around the city. As we talked about last, last week, walls were huge in those days if you were a big city because it was a wall that kept people from just walking in and attacking your city and taking it over. And so a, an important city would protect itself with walls and gates and they have no walls, they have no gates. So in 458 uh, roughly, uh, God raises up another man after Zerubbabel and this man's name is Ezra. And Ezra leads the second wave back. 
And the goal of the second wave was to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the spiritual community. And they go and they work on this, but the walls never quite get done. They start to build the walls and then their enemies accuse them of basically trying to build the walls and rebel against uh, Persia. And so the king says, yeah, no, we're not having that. So he sends some people, they tear what was done of the wall down. And now Israel just feels completely demoralized. And in 445, God raises up a third guy, a third guy who's going to travel from Babylon to Israel, to Jerusalem. And this guy's name was Nehemiah. We introduced him last week. He is the, the kind of the centerpiece of this book that we're looking at. And Nehemiah is in Susa, which is the citadel um, of the Persian Empire. It's where kings went during the winter um, to just run the country. Apparently the weather was, was better there. And so while he's there, a report comes from a brother of his about Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah hears the condition of the people and the city of Jerusalem, he is heartbroken. And as we said last week, this was not new news to him. He had known about this for years. But for some reason, it just really touches his heart this time. And Nehemiah is brokenhearted for people who live a thousand miles away. And so he begins to pray for them, and he begins to, uh, to fast for them, and we're told that he begins to mourn. He's, he's sad, he's heartbroken. He wants to help, but he's going to wait on God. And so he does this for four months. For four months. And then comes the day when Nehemiah decides to, to jump into the story. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. How you jump into that story of what God is doing in the world. I'm going to start with this. Nehemiah follows the lead of God when it comes to getting involved in the story and what God's doing in the world. This is how we ended last week in chapter 1, verse 11. Nehemiah prays. He gets up one morning and this is his prayer. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. That's Nehemiah. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. That would be Israel. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now this man is the king of the Persian Empire. His name is Artaxerxes. Now, that's a great name. And, and then he says, and I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah tells us at the end of chapter one that, that he had a job and it was a really important job because typically the way that you would get rid of a king or a powerful person in those days is you would poison them. It was, the, it was kind of the murder method of, of choice. And so if you were a king or you ran a city or you were an important person, you would have a cupbearer. And the job of the cupbearer was simple. It was to make sure that the things you drank and the things you ate were not poisoned. Right? Now, they didn't have labs back then, so how would you discover if food, in fact, or wine was poisoned? And so Nehemiah would have a bunch of people who would work for him, and their job would be to, to taste the food and taste the wine and make sure they, they didn't drop dead. But because of all this, we're told, especially for Persian kings, they put a lot of trust in their cup bearers. Um, these men were paid well. They were powerful, and they would often serve as valued advisors to the king. They were influential and powerful. And so here's Nehemiah, and, and God has placed Nehemiah in this position, and he's done it for a reason, and it's all beginning to unfold. In fact, today's the day. So when we begin chapter 2, we're in a situation where Nehemiah's been praying for four months. He's been fasting, and he's been planning for four months. I don't know if you've ever taken four months to work on something, and then one day you wake up, and you're like, this is the day. This is the day I'm going to ask. This is the day I'm going to do the thing. And this is the day for Nehemiah. So he gets up this day and he goes to the king. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. 
In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that means Nehemiah is doing his job, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. And then he says this, and I had not been sad in the king's presence. Now, for four months he's been praying, for four months he's been fasting, for four months he's been processing and waiting, and he's been mourning. He's been sad about this, but not in front of the king. And the reason he hadn't been sad in front of the king was because it never went well for you if you were sad in front of the king. Like, I don't know if you know any people that just tend to whine a lot and complain a lot. And I, you know, but you ever put up with that? Well, kings, when you're a king, you don't have to put up with that, right? If you, you just, kings would make a rule. No whining and complaining and griping around me. And if you did, then it was just, you know, off, your, off with your head and it was, you moved on, right? And so here's Nehemiah. Nehemiah he says, well, I didn't do that. I was never sad in front of the king. He didn't want to be a downer, right? He's just waiting for God's time. He's just waiting. And then the day comes. And I love it. And the king says to him, why is your face sad? So I see that you're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, and I was very much afraid. But here's what commentators think about what's going on here. They think that Nehemiah looked sad on this day because he knew it was the day that he was waiting for. And so he didn't have to hide it anymore. In other words, kind of what I'm hearing is no one should be a whiner and complainer all the time, but if you're sad of heart, there may be a time for letting that be known. And this was the day. So he, tell, he just kind of wears it on his face and the king notices what's going on. And, the, and, and Nehemiah, he says he's afraid. Now he's afraid because he knows that he's about to take a big risk. Actually, two risks. The first is, he's going to ask the king for permission to leave the king's service and to go to Jerusalem. And typically this would be seen as an insult. The way a king would take it is, you mean there's something you'd rather do than be with me? Well, then fine, you know, and, and it didn't tend to go well. And the other reason was because this was the king who 13 years earlier had ordered the stopping of the, of the wall building and ordered that what had been done be torn down. And kings didn't like to change their decisions because it, it, it didn't make them look godlike and omnipotent and omniscient and all that stuff. So they tended not to do that. It would be like if you went to your boss and you asked your boss for something and your boss just said, no way, never. And then you decided you were going to go ask again, right? You'd be a little bit of afraid to do that. And that's what's going on here. So Nehemiah says, so I said to the king, let the king live forever. I like the way he's kind of buttering him up. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> I love, hey, for four months he's been praying, for four months he's been fasting, and now the king finally says, tell me what you want. And he just throws up one more quick prayer. In fact, he does a lot of this in the book. But remember this, there's four months of prayer behind this quick little prayer. It's not something that's just on a whim. He's been, he's invested in this thing. And so I said to the king, right, what does Nehemiah see? He sees an open door, right? So he's going to go right on in. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, two things, that you would send me to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem, to the city of my father's graves. Secondly, that I may rebuild the walls. This is a big deal. He's asking the king to do something that the king had formerly stopped. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? 
And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, we don't know how long Nehemiah said he'd be gone, but here's how long he was actually gone, 12 years. And we're guessing he didn't know it was going to be 12 years. In fact, it's safe to say he had no idea it would be that long. Which is kind of a good reminder, isn't it? That sometimes when God leads us to go out and do things and we make a commitment and it takes longer than we thought it was going to be or it's harder than we thought it was going to be, we still stick with that. And as we'll see, that's what Nehemiah does. Now, in verse 7 it says this. And the king, uh, and I said to the king, so here's what's happening. The king's on it, yes, yes, yes. So Nehemiah's just going to keep asking, right? Okay, well, if it pleases the king, then let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple and give me an unlimited gift card to Home Depot so I can go and just buy whatever supplies I need and, and a wall for the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king said, yes, 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 yes. I'll give you what you asked for. And then Nehemiah says this, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so he asked for letters. This is important. What he says is, I'm going to be traveling through some places that don't like Jews, and so I'd need some letters from you that say, I have authority to safely pass through. I need some forest. I mean some timber from the forest. And and timber back then was very expensive. And and he says, so I'm going to need some of that. And the king says, yes. And in fact, what the king does is he basically funds the project for Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets everything he wanted and then some. But he says this, for the good hand of my God was upon me. I think Nehemiah just wants to remind us when we read the story, we might do what a lot of people do. We might read it and think, well, that was just Nehemiah. He was a smart guy. He, he, he was patient. He, he prayed for four months. He probably had plans and blueprints and all that stuff. And that's why Nehemiah got it because he was just, he was an exceptional guy. What Nehemiah is saying is it wasn't any of that. It was God. It was God who did it. And Nehemiah wants us to remember this because we have the same God. The good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knows who made, who made him successful. So, first thing we learn is this, as we talked about last week. If we're going to get in the big story of what God's doing, we've got to follow God's lead. It's not up to us to just come up with a plan. It's, it's God's. But here's the second thing. When we do, we should not limit God's storyline, is the way I'm putting it. And that is what God wants to do in the way God wants to do it. So the king basically becomes what we might call Nehemiah's patron. And by that, what I mean is the king is going to fund this project for Nehemiah. The king is not going to go to Jerusalem. The king is not going to pick up a, a, a sledgehammer and start, you know, doing some work and building walls. He's not going to do that. But he's going to fund the project. He's going to become a patron. And when I was studying this this week, it made me think of our church... Because we kind of had a story that went something like this. In fact, years ago, we were next door. We didn't have this building. This was a parking lot. And we were next door where the kids meet, and we had church. And we had one service, and then we had a second service, and a third, and a fourth. And finally, we had, I think, two services on Saturday night and three services on Sunday morning. There's a lot of services. And, and one day, the, the leadership came, and they said, you know, Pastor, we really feel like we need a building. And I just kind of 
yeah, I didn't want to build a building. I was never really into that kind of thing. And so I just drugged my feet. And, but finally we talked about it and said, well, we need to build a building. But it wasn't quite that simple. We knew that in addition to building this building, we would also have to buy some property because we we'd need more parking and all that kind of stuff. And so basically we realized we needed to raise millions. In fact, probably, I don't know, something like $4 million to make this thing happen. And we weren't a rich church. We didn't have $4 million. And so we began to pray. And, and basically, the way you did it in those days, it's probably still the way you do it. If you're a church of, of the size that we were back then and you wanted to raise that kind of money, and I didn't have any experience doing it. No one else had experience in our church. So we uh, contacted a couple of uh, ministries, and this is what they do. They help churches raise money. And so we interviewed a few, and we decided on one, and we, we brought them in to do a presentation to the congregation. And the bottom line was it was going to cost us about $60,000 to hire them in order to raise this money. And we knew that it would take us several years to raise enough to even just start building the building. So we had a meeting with the congregation, and everybody was like, you know, this is great. This is what we have to do. I went home that night, and I was at home talking to my wife, and I got an email, and I opened it up, and it was from a couple in our church who had been at the meeting that night. And now, I knew them, but I didn't really know much about them. I didn't know what they did or, or any of that kind of stuff, and so they just, they just wrote this email, and the email was pretty short. It just said, hey, pastor, so we were driving home after the meeting, and our thought was, first of all, it's going to take a long time to raise this kind of money, and we feel like we need to build right now. So my wife and I are basically willing to write the church a check in order to just consider it a construction loan, so you can start building immediately. And, uh, and then, and, you know, we don't want any interest on this loan or anything, and then later on you can refinance kind of thing, but just consider yourself that you have the loan, you have the money, and you can start tomorrow. So <laughs> I'm reading the email, and I'm thinking, I don't know if they were the same meeting I was, because the meeting I was at had millions of dollars, and I don't know what they're thinking. So I wrote an email back and said, do you know that we're talking about millions? And they wrote back and said, yeah, duh. And uh, so we got... So we got together the next day, and I, uh, you know, this is one of those like too good to be true, right? So we sat down at the table, and I said, so let me just lay this out for you. It's millions with an M, lots of money, and they're like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, who do you want the check made out to? You know? and, and they said, here's the only thing. We have a couple of conditions. One is we want to remain anonymous, and the second thing is you cannot pay interest on the loan right? on millions of dollars. You know what interest is on millions of dollars? I don't, but I think it's a lot. It's probably more than a, a buck fifty. So I, so anyways, uh, so we did that, and and they basically became the patrons of this project. They made it possible for us to move forward. And this is this is kind of what's happening here. Now in verse 9 he tells us this, and I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I, I gave them the king's letter so he could pass through. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. So this is where, for me, it gets kind of, kind of interesting. And it's the only, only the kind of thing you notice if, you, if you've read the previous book, if you've read the book of Esther, um, of Ezra, I'm sorry. And so you've got Ezra. So let's talk a little bit about this. So um, first God raised up Zerubbabel to go to Jerusalem, and then God raised up a guy named Ezra to go to Jerusalem, and then God raises up Nehemiah. Ezra went about 13 years, roughly, before Nehemiah. When Ezra heard what was going on in uh, Jerusalem, he began to pray and he began to fast, and he began to make plans, and that's what Nehemiah did. But when it came time to go, Ezra decided that he would not take any soldiers with him to protect him on the journey, and here's why. He reasoned, if I take soldiers from the king, that it will look like I don't trust God to deliver me and protect me. 
And I, I don't, you know, I don't want to send that kind of message. So he took gold and silver, a lot of it, to finance a project, and he had it guarded by 12 priests and 10 friends on a thousand-mile, three-month journey. He said, I will not take letters from the king. I will not take soldiers from the king because I want to be clear that I trust God. I trust God to deliver me on this long journey. And so he makes this trip and he gets there just fine. 13 years later, we have Nehemiah. God raises up him to go to the same place and do the same work. This time, the king says, would you like soldiers? And Nehemiah's like, yes, right, okay? Would you like letters of authority? Nehemiah is, yes. Can you see what's happening here? It's like two guys going on the same project, but in two completely different ways. Both men were godly, both men reasoned, both men fasted and prayed, but they came up with two opposite strategies to deal with the same problem. And the question that theologians wrestle with was, who was right and who was wrong? And of course, the answer is, they were both right. See, because we have this tendency sometimes in our minds to think, if God does something one way, then he always has to do it the same way from now on forever. That he's like my kids. When my kids were growing up, they always thought it only took one time to do something and that was a tradition. And then you always had to do it the same way every other time. And we're like that sometimes in the church. And what we find here is sometimes God will do the same work through different people in entirely different ways. And so it's not a matter of who was right and who was wrong. It's a matter of seeking God and following his leading and not putting God in a box that he hasn't put himself in. And I say it because it still happens today all the time amongst believers. This afternoon, uh, we were upstairs in the conference room doing uh, Gateway 101, and we talked about some of this stuff. For instance, one church may pray about it and decide, you know what, we're only singing hymns. I have a friend, leads a church, great church. They only sing hymns, right? Basically, it's like we only sing songs written by dead guys. That's their policy, right? Some churches only sing songs written by people who are very much alive and uh, barely can shave. That's the way they do it, right? It's like some churches old song, some churches new songs. Which, which church is right? Uh, some churches, they only do expositional preaching. That's what we're doing. Book by book, verse by verse. Uh, I know churches where the pastors only teach topically, just a topic, a series on this, a series on that. Who's right? Who's wrong? Some churches send teams to Nicaragua after praying about it. I have a friend, they send their teams to Nigeria. We never had a discussion over who was right and who was wrong, right? Because this is the way God works. But we still see this. You know, we, I... I know churches where kids stay in the worship service the whole time. I know churches where, I know a church where kids are not allowed in the worship service ever. They have to be next door with the kids. Again, in these churches, by the way, they don't get along that well. They fight over this, over who's right and who's wrong. I've seen churches that fight over like, you know, well, the, the, the church should focus on the homeless or the church should focus on single moms or the church should mar focus on married couples or on single couples or on kids or on adults or men or women. I know churches that say, you know, we only use the ESV Bible. It's all we use. It's you know, just like it was handed down to, to Moses, yeah? Or some that say we only use New American Standard or we only use King James. Churches that don't, so I have a friend there at a church and they don't have a screen, 
I say, why don't you have a screen? He's like, because I want people to open up their Bible and, and read it, and I want them to use printed hymnals, right? Just like King David did, right? Like, this is the way, this is the way it works. And they'll fight over, churches will fight over it. They'll say it's wrong. I've actually had people say it's wrong to have a screen in your church. This is not right. I know churches where the services are 60 minutes, churches where the services are 75 minutes, Churches where the service is 90 minutes. I'm not going to tell you how long we are tonight. but uh, And again, churches that fight over it. Churches that argue over it. They'll say, well, you're wrong and we're right. Here's the point. Two men, godly men, same project, totally different routes. Who is right? The answer is yes. <laughs> they were both right. And this is the way that it works sometimes. Be careful about putting God in a box that God does not put himself in. Going on to the next verse, because I beat that horse. All right, so when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, so two new characters, and they'll come up several times in this book, heard about this, heard about what Nehemiah was doing, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Let me just say this, because I got to really go as quick as I can. These, so I'll just summarize this whole page. They're bad guys, all right? And they don't like God, and they don't like God's people. And by the way, you'll meet people like that in your life as well. We'll get back to that next week. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. I love how he says this. I went to Jerusalem. Not like I went on a thousand-mile journey. He doesn't say anything about it taking three months. He doesn't say anything about leaving privilege and security and wealth and great food and comfort. He doesn't say anything about the difficult journey or any of that, the heat, the discomfort. He just says, so I went to Jerusalem. Verse 12, and then I arose in the night. So he gets there. He takes a three-day nap, I think, and then he gets up in the middle of the night. Now, this is a cool passage. We won't dwell here, but it's, it's kind of fun to read. Read it some night when it's really dark and there's no lights on anywhere and go outside with a flashlight and read it. It's kind of fun. So he says, I rose in the night. It's nighttime. It's dark. It's pitch black there. There are no street lights. Right? There are no neon signs anywhere. So he, he, he goes out in the middle of the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So he's going out on a secret mission one night. He's going to survey the broken walls, and he takes only a few men with him, people he trusted, but not enough to tell them what he's doing because he isn't telling anybody what he's up to. And then he describes it. So I, I went out by the night, uh, by the, in the night by the valley gate. So he's just, he's just describing real places to us. This is something that happened, and these are real places. And, he, and then he went to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and he went by that really quick, I think. And then I, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. So he's, he's checking out the, the scenario. And then I went onto the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up at night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back. So what uh, archaeologists can tell us now that is at, by this point in the wall, it comes to a kind of a sheer cliff and there would have been so much rubble from the wall that he couldn't get any, he couldn't go any farther. So he turns around and he goes back to the valley gate and so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and I like this phrase, and the rest who were going to do the work. So he, he has plans for them, but he hasn't told them yet what it's going to be. Now here's what I love about this passage. I love this. Does Nehemiah ever stop to ask, what in the world do I know about building walls of a city? He is a 
cupbearer. He doesn't do manual labor. He doesn't know about this. And furthermore, he doesn't have YouTube to look it up on. So yet yesterday, I demolished my kitchen with a couple other guys. And I, I've never demolished a kitchen, but I know how to get on YouTube. So I went on YouTube and saw a whole bunch of cool videos, and then we, we tore out the kitchen. He doesn't have this. He has, have no, he has no experience doing this. And my point is this. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God calls us to do things that we've never done before. And sometimes the way that God calls us to do things, and this is the part I love, is he does it by making you the person who can see what no one else sees. This is really kind of what I love about this story. Nehemiah sees what no one else sees. He sees broken down walls and he sees a problem. Everyone else has just learned to live with it. Sometimes God makes you the one to see a need that other people don't see. So that rather than complaining to your pastor or your deacons or the person sitting next to you about why my church doesn't do this or this or this or this or this, consider the fact that maybe you were seeing the need because God wants you to see the need. Because God wants to open your eyes. He wants you to pray about it. He wants you to think about it. He wants you to fast about it. He wants you to do something about it. Not just grab a complain and go on Facebook and who's going to do this, Right? but for you to do what Nehemiah did. I mean, when you think about it, that's how we got this church, right? There was, a, there was no church in, in, in Washougal, and a group of people said, we need a church in Washougal. They could see what no one else saw. And so they started a church in Washougal. It's how we got Family Promise, right? It, let me tell you how Family Promise didn't happen at Gateway. It, it wasn't that one day somebody in our church thought, you know, they thought, hey, we don't, we don't have a ministry to homeless people. That would be a really good thing. So they told a couple of their friends, and then they came to me after sermon, and they said, Pastor, you need to start a ministry to people that don't have a place to live. That's not how it happened. Here's how it happened. There was a couple of people in our church, and God opened their eyes, and they saw the need, and so they went out, and they did some research, and they did some investigating, and they invested a lot of their own personal money, and then eventually we ended, they came to me and said, Pastor, we should do family promise. And I said, what's that? And they said, let me tell you. And they had, the whole thing was done because God had put this on their heart. God had helped them to see this. You know, this is how we got Club W. It's how we got the run for the hungry on Thanksgiving morning. Right? I mean, who in their right mind would come up with an idea? Hey, you know what we should do on Thanksgiving morning? We should all get up stupid early and, and, and come to church and we should all go for a big long run. Like, that sounds like a great idea. Right? But one person, there was one person in our church who thought it was a great idea. Some of us thought he was crazy, but right? Now a thousand of us on, on Thanksgiving morning have caught on to the vision, but it's because somebody did something about it. It's how we got our food pantry. It's how we got grow groups. It's how we, we got our Nicaragua trips and our, and our kids' church. And it's why we have a room full of, uh, of youth next door on Wednesday nights. And they'll be here tonight afterwards, by the way, eating good food and uh, getting together for grow groups. Where did all this come from? It came from God putting this vision on individuals' hearts and having them do what Nehemiah did. They, they begin to invest themselves. Here's my question. What has God allowed you to see? so that you could begin to pray and you could begin to plan. And then here's the third thing I want to mention in this passage, and that is this. As you do this, as you get involved in serving God and being part of the big story, never forget who is in charge. And this is important. Again, verse 19, going back to Samballat and Tobiah. 
But when Sambalad and, and, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant, and Geshem, the Arab, so now we've got three guys. These are like just enemies of Israel. They're, they're naysayers, right? They jeered at us, right? They're having a meeting to plan to build the walls. And it says they jeered at us and they, they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, here's what's happening here. And it's pretty, pretty powerful. They're trying to threaten the Jews into doing nothing. This whole idea of, of rebelling against the king, right? These are not idle words. These are the people who 13 years earlier, when the walls were going up and they didn't like it, they wrote a letter to the king and said, the Jews are rebelling. The king believed it, sent some people, tore down the wall. They're just saying, do you remember that? Do you remember how demoralizing that was? We'll do it again if you try to build those walls again. I don't know if you can ever recall a time when you tried to do something, when you tried to serve in some way, and maybe it didn't go the way you planned. Maybe it didn't end up quite where you thought it would. Maybe you, would, you, know, maybe you felt like you failed. You got in some ministry, you committed to something to serve in some way, and you got burned. Did you ever do that? I wonder, do you ever live in fear of that? Do you let yesterday's perceived failure keep you from following God boldly and full of faith today? And it's safe to say it happens to all of us. In fact, I would venture to say it happens to me every weekend. I don't know the last time I preached three sermons on a weekend and didn't walk away from one of them thinking, I didn't do that right or say that right or I wish I would have had a different story. I wish the sermon would have been shorter or, you know, whatever it was or that's what you think. But, you know, it's like any of that stuff. Because guess what? No matter how it went, I have to come back the next week and do this again. And it's a good thing that I do because it's good for me. It's good for my faith. And goes on, and this is, this is what Nehemiah says. He replied to their enemies. The God of heaven will, will make us prosper. Right? We're going to have success. And we, his servants, will arise and we will build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. His point is just this. This is God's project. This is God's work from beginning to end. And God will handle the opposition. Uh, this week I was rereading a book that I had read years ago. It's by a guy named John Ortberg. It's called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. And uh, I came across a couple of stories. I want to read one for you because this is just I, just, I was just reading this about the time I was thinking about this whole idea of not being afraid and, and, and trusting God to take care of us. This is what uh, John wrote in the middle of his book. One day I was walking with a few friends in Newport Beach, California, and we uh, went past a bar where there was a fight that was going on inside and it spilled out onto the street. It was just like a right out of an old Western and three men were beating up one lone opponent and he was bleeding quite freely. And we felt like we had to do something. So uh, we went over to break up the fight. This guy's a pastor, by the way. So we went over to break up the fight and to warn the aggressors in no uncertain terms that this fight was over. Unfortunately, I have not had much experience in that sort of thing, and I, I missed the day that my seminary class covered how to break up barroom fights, and so we had uh, spent a little too much time in church to have effective language for that kind of intervention at our fingertips. I think I said something like, all right, you guys, cut it out right now, I'm serious. And that usually works really well on three-year-olds in church who know you have access to their parents, but breaking up drunken brawls is not a strong area of spiritual passion or competence for me, but somebody had to do something so I, I would just say I spoke, I spoke prophetically to them, and then I waited for my first fist fight since I had been part of a church deacon board. However, 
the thugs suddenly looked at, uh, up at us with fear in their eyes and they started to back away. And this caught me so much by surprise that I almost stopped to ask, what are they running from? But then I looked behind me and there I saw one of the biggest guys I have ever seen. He was apparently employed as a bouncer at the bar room and suddenly I gained this great deal of respect for that profession. I would guess the man stood about 6'7", weighed 250 pounds or so with, I don't know, 2% body fat. We called him Mongo, not to his face though. <laughs> Mongo did not say a word. He never said one word. He just stood there with muscles bulging. He looked as if he hoped they would try to take him on. This was an area of massive, breathtaking competence for Mongo. Breaking up fights was his spiritual gift. And in that moment, my attitude was transformed. In fact, I yelled out loud, you better not let us catch you hanging around here again. <laughs> and we, were, we were different people because we had a great big Mongo behind us. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was ready to serve anyone who needed help. Why? Because Mongo had passed by. I was convinced that I was not alone. The middle of a ballroom fight was a perfectly safe place for me to be. If I were convinced that Mongo were with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would have a fundamentally different approach to life. But of course he's not. I cannot go around with Mongo beside me all the time and it's probably a good thing because I don't need him. I have one who is greater than Mongo who is with me at all times. That's all that he's saying here. Nehemiah is saying I don't need to be afraid of my enemies because God is with me. And so I want to end with this point, and that is this. Point four, that means we need to live in light of the big story. And if this sounds familiar, then it means you were here last week and you remember that the last point in the sermon last week was the exact same thing. Uh, get used to it. Uh, so let me just kind of wrap this up for us here if I can. Going back in verse 17, notice, notice what he said. He was speaking, Nehemiah speaking to the Israelites who were living there, and he says this. You see the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be in disgrace. Here's what's so powerful about this. Nehemiah is not from there. Nehemiah is an outsider. But as an outsider, he is able to see what the Jews no longer even noticed about their city. And that was, it was a disgrace. They just got used to it. But he saw it for what it really was. Now, here's what he means by disgrace. See, Israel were the chosen people of God, but they had forsaken God years ago. They had walked away from God. And that's what led to their exile. That's what led to the Babylonians coming in and then to the Persians coming in. That's what happened. That's why they were there. And, and what happened was it brought shame on people who were supposed to bring glory to God. And Jerusalem had a purpose. In Psalm 48, it says that the purpose of Jerusalem was to, to be the city of the great king, and it was to be a joy for all the earth. But it wasn't any of those things anymore. It was a disgrace. And Nehemiah's greatest concern wasn't for the walls. It, it wasn't about protection for the city. It was for the, the message that it was sending or not sending to a desperate world. And that is, we have no answers here. We are a broken down city and it doesn't even bother us anymore. But Nehemiah from the outside can see it for what it is. And here's what he knows. God has made a promise. God's promise was simply this. If Israel would repent, 
God would restore them. And that's happening. They're, they're in the process right now. So he's encouraging people, let's get on board. Let's get on board with the big story and what God's doing. In other words, it's not just about them. It's not just about their story. It's about other people who need to see the glory of God. They're looking. They're waiting. They need an answer. Where are they going to find it? And in verse 18, he says this. And so I told them. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me. So Nehemiah just says, I know you guys don't even realize how bad the situation is. And I don't even know that you trust God anymore. So let me tell you what happened to me. I was working for the king and, you know, this is why I heard this message and I, and I fasted and I prayed and he tells him all of this had happened. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me and they responded and they said, well, then let us rise up. I love this. And let us build. And so they strengthened their hands to do uh, the good work. So here's Nehemiah. He's living in a Persian city of Susa, the most powerful and wealthy nation of the day. He works for the most arguably powerful man on the earth. Nehemiah is a man of importance and influence and money, and he risks everything, everything by asking the king, by, by taking this thousand-mile journey. Because here's what Nehemiah understood. It was the rest of the story that gave meaning to his story. In 1 Peter 4.10, it says this. Each one of us, now, he's writing to you and to me. This is Peter. He says, each one of us should use whatever gift he has, whatever gift she has, to serve others. Nehemiah had a gift. It was his position. It was the authority that he had. That was the gift God had given to him. We should use whatever God has given us to serve other people, faithfully administering God's grace, all of God's grace in its various forms. What the Bible says is every one of us have God-given gifts. We have time. That's a, that's a gift from God. We're here. We're breathing. We have another day. That's certainly a gift from God. God's given us intelligence. I can see that you are highly intelligent people, right? So God's given you intelligence and strength. You have natural abilities. You have spiritual gifts. And the big thing that God has given us, by the way, the big one is the gospel. It's the gospel that he's entrusted us. The gospel is simply this, that God made us and, and, and gave us purpose, but we turned away from that purpose. So we sinned against God. We were separate from God. We were dead in our sin. But God loves us so much that he sent his son to this earth in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, revealed God to us both through his actions and his words. It was a preordained counsel of God that he should be arrested, that he should be nailed to a cross where he would suffer and die and pay the penalty for your sin and mine. He would be buried. He would be raised on the third day. He would appear to many. He would ascend to heaven. And all of us who place our faith in him become children of God. We have been redeemed. We are going to heaven. We have been right, or made right with God. And this is, this is the story that gives your life meaning. It's a story that gives our church meaning. It's the most precious thing that God has given to us. Here's my question. How is God calling you to live that out? How is God calling you to get involved in the big story, in the big thing that God is doing at what do you need to pray about? What do you need to do? What do you need to give or sign up for or commit to? Here's my encouragement to you before we go on in the weeks to come with Nehemiah. Get that thing worked out. Think about that. Pray about it. What has God given you the ability to see? What has God put on your heart so that you can be part of the big story and bless other people? Well, I want to close with one more story from the book. I'll pray and we'll be done. 
Uh, but this is great. So um, Orberg's writing, he says this. Sometime after Florence, my paternal grandmother died. My grandfather called my mother with an unusual offer. Kathy, he said in his heavy Swedish accent, I was going through some of Florence's things in the attic when I came across a box of old dishes. And I was going to get rid of them, but I noticed that they're blue and that's your favorite color. So why don't you come take a look at them? And if you want them, they're yours. Otherwise, I'll give them to the Salvation Army. So my mother went, she went through the attic. She was expecting to find some run-of-the-mill dinnerware. Instead, when she opened the box, she was looking at some of the most exquisite china she had ever seen. Each plate had been individually painted with a pattern of forget-me-nots, and the cups were inlaid mother of pearl. The dishes and cups were rimmed with real gold. The plates had been handcrafted in a Bavarian factory that was destroyed during the Second World War, so they were literally irreplaceable. Yet my mother had been in the family for 20 years, and she had never seen this china before. So she asked my father about it. He grew up in the family, and he said he had never seen it either. Eventually, they found out from some older family members the story of the china that goes like this. When Florence was very young, she was given this china over a period of years. Uh, they were not a wealthy family, and the china was quite valuable, so she only got one piece at a time, maybe a confirmation or graduation or birthday or Christmas. Why had my parents never seen it? Well, to know that, you'd have to know something about the character of us Swedes. We are a cautious kind of people. We don't roll the dice easily. For instance, my two great aunts lived for 80 years in a beautiful Victorian home built by my great-grandfather in the 1800s. The most beautiful room in that house was the parlor. The parlor was reserved for special guests. No guest that special ever came over to the house, so the parlor never got used. When Florence received the, a piece of china, because it was so valuable, because if it was used, it might get broken, she would wrap it up carefully in tissue, put it in a box, and store it in the attic for a very special occasion. No occasion that special ever came along. And so my grandmother went to her grave with the greatest gift of her life unopened and unused. And then my mother was given the dishes. My mother uses them promiscuously every chance she has. They finally made it out of the box. God has given you and I the greatest gift ever. He's given us abilities and spiritual gifts, and those are all important, but he's given us the message of the gospel. My question for you is, where do you need to get that out of the box and use that precious gift this week in your life? In your home, in your neighborhood, at work, at school, where do you need to get that out? Let me pray for us. We'll send you on your way.